Hey, this is Candia Raquel. Welcome to the Sensual Sessions podcast, the place to explore sensing pleasure through your senses and moving in a way that is completely free from inhibition and full of self-expression. So if you're new, please go to www.centraldepoder.com and get yourself signed up to get these episodes delivered weekly on your inbox. And today we have a very special guest. This is Astra Coyle. She is a TED speaker and she's a Feldenkrais Method practitioner. Welcome, Astra. Very happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I'm curious about what was the moment along your journey that you discovered that there's a close knit connection between body and mind to the point that actually it's not even a connection. It's an inseparable intertwining. And how did it shift your your career, your life path? Um, well, I come by it very honestly. <laughs> when I was maybe four years old, I signed up for a ballet class. I grew up in a family that loved to dance, not trained in any way. We just, if we had a birthday or a holiday, we would roll up the rugs and crank up the music and we would just dance very freely. <laughs> and yeah. so I love music. I love to move. Um, And when I was a little girl, I there was a ballet class down the street, um, you know, and I went to it. And I remember wanting to love it. I wanted to love ballet. And I found it very difficult. I was trying to contort and do these things with my body that felt um, very confining And I remember being frustrated by that um, and eventually like very quickly quitting going um, because it just somehow didn't come, didn't feel like it came naturally to me. And in fact, it's not very natural movement, you know, at all Agreed. in terms of functional movement. Right? <laughs> But somehow, because I wasn't socialized yet, right, I was very young, I was like, Oh, this hurts, you know, I don't really like this. And then was lucky enough to go to a elementary school later, like a year later, where we had tap dance. And so to get to make noise with my feet and big movements, and, you know, less, much less constrained, I just felt so much better and I knew it, you know? So that connection between how we move and our mood or how we feel, um, you know, I remember that very early. Like I remember it when I would try on different shoes, you know, <laughs> and, and be like, oh, I walk like this in these shoes and I walk like, you know, and just realizing what an effect how I moved had on how I felt about myself, but also just how I was thinking, how I was, you know, feeling emotionally. Um, so it came, came early. And so the Feldenkrais training came very late because of course, then I was conditioned like most of us to believe that the main pursuit I needed in my life was my mind, um, in my education. And I have no regrets about that. Um, however, I really, I was an athlete. I did a lot of things and I really thought of my body as this thing that I needed to take care of 
to take care of my precious brain. You know, in a sense, that was the teaching. Um, and everything was, the body was sort of in service that the brain perform. Um, and fast forward to my 20s, I was searching just in life, you know, <laughs> and I, um, I was studying, I studied Zen meditation, I studied yoga in India, I studied a lot of things, and I still didn't have this sense that I wanted of myself. I don't know what it was. I was searching for some feeling and I couldn't find it. I wanted to, um, wanted to feel very, um, like a real clear ownership of myself. Yeah. And a reference from myself. And then I ran into a friend and we were about 25 and she, I could feel it. I could see it in her. And I'm like, what are you doing? you know and she said oh I'm doing this thing called the Feldenkrais method and I was like hmm um I went to a class and I hated it absolutely <laughs> hated it I couldn't stand it can um, I can relate <laughs> I mean they were asking me to do something um without my will and I had used my will to do everything in my life yes yes and I couldn't outsmart them. You know, I couldn't outwill them. Um, so I started studying it. And when the teachers, you know, really the lesson, right, of Feldenkrais is to be self-referential. For you to decide what's enough, for you to decide what feels good, for you to decide what you want, don't want. And that was the most important learning in my life. Um, because until that time, I was very good at achieving other people's goals. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. being good at achieving other people's goals. I can relate to that as yeah. well. And yeah. for me, the first time I, the first lesson I took of Feldenkrais was devastating. Actually, I landed into a two week retreat. No, I was driving, I was going crazy on the third day of laying on the floor, doing nothing. It felt like doing nothing because I was like in my big top shape of a contemporary dancer. I, I trained ballet every day, Graham technique every day, then the rehearsals, then the sh and I was like all ripped and like lay there sense the support of the floor and then push the wall one hour no the first day <laughs> I was like okay maybe this is like the background of what we are doing like this is the foundation and it was but not in the way I thought and the third day I was like okay enough warm-up and I grabbed the teacher and I was like what what's the what is it? and she told me no you're doing you're doing good, like just follow the process. And it blew me away that by the fifth day, almost unconsciously, I walked nonstop across the town for almost two hours. Like I went out of the retreat center. I wanted to get a sandwich. And walking felt so pleasurable. I mean, it was not walking. It was like gliding along life in a very delightful mm -hmm. bodily way, way. 
And I was like, oh, yes, I can feel the weight shifting and my hips and the rotation of my thorax and the swinging of the arms. Like everything that I've been taught in ballet that I should do naturally, it is natural. But I was not doing it on, on ballet the way I was supposed to do in a natural way, but I was framed in a rigid technique and in in complying with what was expected from me. So that day, like I I passed in front of the of the cafeteria that I used to go because like walking felt so good that I, I couldn't stop myself. So, so mm. I went to the other end of the little town that is San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, and then came back. And then that sandwich lasted like one hour because I delighted in every bite. And it was like, oh, no, this is amazing. And then I realized like, ah, ah, this is what Feldenkrais is about. I mean, n not pleasure and delight itself, but being self-referential. Like, what do you think about yourself? Not how do you think that you are coming across to the perceptions of others so they think what you want them to think? So that's what you take for yourself as your self-worth. <laughs> and yeah, it was devastating and wonderful because it threw down like the, the false constructions of my very self and laid an open and spacious ground for my true self to emerge. Of course, this is what I am telling happened over the next decade after the experience, not immediately, but yeah, yeah. It, was, it was like a, a life-changing moment. And I am very curious uh, on asking you about your TED talk where, where you mentioned that it's not that we, in actuality, operate in a mind over matter way. As much as as much as we pretend to and force to and push with all of our willpower to, but that the truth is that it's the other way around. It's matter over mind. So in a way, if we change the experience of of ourselves then our self-idea and our self-perception changes. But the question is, like, how come? Like, Well, so, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, so we have a brain, right? And it has multiple influences to the brain nervous system, yeah? And the brain does control the body, right? So it has we'll say top down beliefs, mindset, things like this. And then there's the outside in. So experiences, culture, all of those things. Yeah. But then there's the bottom up, which is the biology. And that's movement and that's genes. And that's, that's the things that are hardwired from the moment you're born. So they're very primary. The biological drives are primary and they're inescapable. Yes. <laughs> they influence 
how we react to the culture, the environment, the experiences. And those things create our mindsets, our beliefs, our thinking patterns. Yeah. So they're all in the mix, but the biology drives it. And it's, so it's the easiest place to move the needle. Yeah. Yes. When you work with the biology. Um, because look, we're animals and what our, what we are driven to do consciously or not is to live and to procreate, you know, that's what the animals, you know, there's this sort of <laughs> drive that happens, not for everyone, right. But to live. Yes. Um, in order to live, you have to move a hundred percent in some way, even if it's just to move your mouth to say you need help or, or whatever. And um, that's why movement is so essential and takes up so much of the brain as we need it to survive. And there's such a drive to not to survive. Yeah. So again, movement is just that biology. There's so much wiring there, so much firing in the brain when you get into the body. Um, and, you know, if you try to follow changing your thinking patterns or your emotional patterns, it's possible. And it takes a lot of work. And the biological responses, when you know how to work with them, they're so much faster. You know? So much faster to work from the bottom up. And yeah, it definitely is the case that the nervous system is a relative a relatively new evolutionary innovation like like mm. before the nervous system and the spinal column like mm -hmm. there was already the other digestive systems like we see it in in very primal life forms so if we go back like there are five kingdoms and the only kingdom with nervous system is the animal so there is like 80% rest of the life forms that operate and sustain the atmosphere trees and forests excel and that's why we have clouds because of evapotranspiration and we have like bacteria and most life is literally brainless though it's extremely efficient effective and tested over thousands of millions of years to be fit and and to survive and and we have like this this refinement in in life forms so we that are very intelligent with our brains and nervous systems identified ourselves anthropologically with that But that's not the main strength in our physiology, in, 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 in our operative. Uh, well, not only that, but neuroscientists now are saying that the brain, its primary drive is movement. The brain came on to provide more um successful you know diverse movement of the body right and they used to think that like oh you know um 
Lucy, the primate stood and then we developed this brain. No, the brain came on so Lucy would stand. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And and just what you're saying. And so, you know, um, and I do think you're making this really interesting point, which is, you know, this whole idea we got from Descartes, like I think therefore I am, yes. right? I think it was to just, I mean, I'm not going to analyze Descartes, but there's something to that, that we wanted to distinguish ourselves from other animals to prove some superiority, some something, right? And, and in that proving, we got very far from the truth, which is we are animals with yeah. these biological drives. You know? So, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the more connected we are to, to our physiological nature, the healthier we become and the clearer we think. And right, that you all these studies now on Alzheimer's, the more you move, the the chances of Alzheimer's decrease significantly, significantly. You know, I mean there's just so many things now we're seeing in published studies related to movement and health. Um, way beyond your heart or, you know, these things that we used to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in contrast to to this, like, true truth, uh, we have this societal view that we have to exert our willpower to, to get accomplished and we need to hustle and even suffer and self-sacrifice for the sake of getting to a certain goal but this willpower center centered way of doing is actually tremendously inefficient <laughs> so so yeah like in Feldenkrais it's like you don't have to comply with anyone. It's even said that Moshe Feldenkrais didn't praise anyone for ever at all. Like, like the more he would may say is not bad. And that was like, wow, like the compliment ever. Like you, you can feel like accomplished and loved and, and whatever. Because, and then they, they say that he didn't, wanted you to become like biased by his gaze and be and and always be self-referential so what what would you say about this so societal view on on pushing forward and exerting willpower yeah i i think anytime we're looking at societal value um, which is one of those influences on the brain, we have to ask, like, who made it? And like, who's it serving? Right? Okay, okay. Um, I, I think we always have to kind of look at that and go, huh, okay, like, how did this become the cultural value? And I, I think, um, for one, you can look at industrialization. You can look at when we suddenly started to really 
not live in cycles, not live in earthly cycles or seasonal cycles. And we started, let's say, I don't know, having productions of cars 24 hours a day, seven days a week or something like this. And that very mechanistic view of the body, of the world is very focused on an outcome. It's very focused on a product. And I think this all is very related to the economy, right? So if you want to, um, you know, will is great. I still use my will all the time. But if you want to talk about pleasure or you're talking about the process, you're not talking about the product. Yes. Right? So, you know, there's a lot of different theories as to how we got there. But, you know, for example, we used to host a party at my house and I would be a maniac, especially when my children were very little, trying to get everything and organized and, you know, clean this and do that. And I would be very, very tense. And my husband, and this is even after the Feldenkrais training, <laughs> and my husband would say, remember, we're doing this because we wanted to have fun. Like we wanted to have our friends over and we wanted it to be a good time. Like, is this worth it? You know, the state that you are in, right? So this is an example. I was doing this and to then get to the product of the perfect clean house for the party, Right. So I had to start, I chose to start really looking at that balance. Well, what, like, what does that balance look like where I'm not so stressed? Because again, whose value is it? Do my friends really care? Where did that come from that I thought it had to be a certain way, right? Because it didn't come from my friends, <laughs> right? So that's an example of like, we can get so focused on the outcome and so stressed to get to that outcome that we miss all of this in between. We miss all of the potential enjoyment. You know, I I took a walk before we um, started today and it's very beautiful right now. The leaves are changing color. It's the temperature is getting cool. It's, It's just a beautiful time of the year. And um, if I was just walking to, let's say, burn so many calories or get my workout in or whatever, which I do work out, I do do things with a, a goal. But if that was my only goal and I didn't walk to see the leaves, to hear them, to hear the river, you know, to enjoy what was happening around me, it wouldn't have been very pleasurable, you know, know, at all. So I feel like, you know, tuning into yourself, as you keep saying, like being self-referential and in your sensation, in your senses, that is what takes you to the moment, to the process, to living versus being just about the future and the goal and the end point. And that's what that will, that will is so focused on the outcome. You know, and like we started this discussion, you know, I was very good at winning the goal, like, (laughs) you know, and um, one of my favorite jokes, there's a comedian, Lily Tomlin, and she says, just remember, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, they can't stay in the wheel. you know, that's just it. I, I have that quote in my office because I'm always like, 
I know I still need to be reminded of it. I am somebody who likes to work hard. I actually really enjoy hard work. Um, and striking that balance, my body and my sensation has given me this constant awareness and measure of how I, how am I? How is it going? Is this, have the scales tipped to too much? Am I cleaning for a party like a maniac stressed out? Or am I still enjoying getting the house ready for a party? You know, so um, sensation in my body has totally changed that because that reference is just always there. It's always there. I'm always aware of it. Yeah. 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 Being focused on, on the sensation rather on exerting willpower just for the goal sake by passing the process and it's graphically it's a radical perspective to to think on on achieving the goal on the deadline because like i mean to me sometimes it's helpful because otherwise my aloofness take over and i go all over the place so if i have a deadline like Come hell or high water, you have to make it there. Yeah. But it's linear and it, mm -hmm. it has a reference of an end in contrast with the natural cycles that mm -hmm. are endless and that w spring leads to summer, to autumn, to winter, to spring. And then there is this flow and yes there, there are solstices and equinoxes there are deadlines to the seasons but it's not a dying deadline it's 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 a transformational moment it's an intermediate state which mm. is very different it's it's another approach and it doesn't mean that then we are goalless or or we we are not moved by by accomplishing a, a desire or being irresponsible in actuality is more that we are tending to that becoming because we are running the process moment by moment and then this this opens room for a very different experience, not a one that leads you to the emergency room with a heart attack or to having problems with addictions, binge eating, alcoholism, depression, whatever. Just because of this tremendous cultural blind spot that we have like embedded already in our system. So when we move through sensitivity something very important arises that i believe is is pleasure in the doing in the move moving in the thinking in the feeling as as a whole so i i want to ask you on your take on sensual pleasure yeah yeah i so sensual pleasure to me. I mean, I think they go hand in hand, right? Sensuality and pleasure. Um, I would say in a lot of North American and Western cultures, that's been co-opted into meaning something sexual, which it's not. 
you know, at all, at all, uh, at all, at all. And um, I think that has to do with being in worlds that are the value systems. If we were to ascribe a, a, a name to some of those values, we would say they're masculine values. Yeah. And um, I do think taking one's pleasure and sensation back is the way to take back one's own values. Um, and it's not, it's not separate from the culture or society, but it is in conversation with. Yes. Conversation. It's a dialogue, but for too many people, that dialogue is only one way. We are, you, we see so many people, um, our students striving for something and not being satisfied, you know, and things not being enough. And there's sort of this perfectionistic drive, you know, especially we see it with women. And that comes from not being the ones who are creating the values. Yeah. So when we can take that back, um, I think that really shifts how we feel about sensuality and about pleasure. Because, you know, if you just look at, for example, like the self-care industry, um, I like to get my toenails painted, like sometimes, sure. But sometimes to take care of myself means to take a nap, to things that can't be sold, right? yeah. things that can't yeah. be commodified, things that, right? And um, and that's really important to take that back, you know, to take those practices back. And like we've been talking about, to have the process be something that is also satisfying for you, not just pleasing to the values and the culture that you're in. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be valued by your culture. That, that's we're we're very social creatures. That's to be human. Um, but it's to the extent that that you can balance that then that dialogue to something that has value to you um, and that you are part of the equation of creating it, not just trying to run to keep up to be the thing that you're told is valuable, you know. Um, so I think pleasure is a huge part of that because like we both talked about, you know, I like to do hard things sometimes. It gives me great pleasure, you yeah. know, <laughs> but as long as there is that is when that can come from me, that's the best. That's when it's pleasurable. When I have to strive or to hustle um, and it's not coming from me, which sometimes is what we have to do. You know, this is a reality. But when that's when that's not coming from me, it's not pleasurable. You know, it's yes, yes. It's a very different experience. Yeah, that's a huge key because having the the nails done can be a pleasurable experience, but if it's not a self-referential activity, but a complying active activity to the standards 
of beauty, in that moment, pleasure is, is lost that easy. Like, it's not the same to take a nap because you feel like taking a nap than getting all anxious because you didn't took your nap interval from the app <laughs> that is telling you that you have to take it to feel the circle of, of the activity app that you share with your friends and whatever. And there's such a fine line because when pleasure is in a way expected from you, then it's lost. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it, it, it's pleasure is very rebellious. <laughs> Right, there has to be choice. There has to be choice. There has to be choice, yeah. yeah. And like you say, sometimes we have to do what we have to do, like pay the IRS, or if you broke the window of your neighbor's car, like you have to pay it, <laughs> no matter what, or in an emergency or work commitments, etc. But those are very few counted instances in life where you are actually like do to to comply where where you have no choice but the 99% of the rest of the things that you do with your life even though it's in your work and there's commitment and there's effort involved you have the ability to choose and the problem i believe is that we are not choosing enough and something yeah, that's it. That choice is, is everything it's everything and and you can see people even people who are incarcerated there are amazing stories of people who still figure out their choice so yeah. you can even be in a very confined restricted situation and you can still find your agency you can still yeah. find your agency. Yeah. Yes. And I I, I I only know this from other people sharing that with me. And it's just, in a, you know, so paying the IRS, whatever it is, even within that, there's still some, there's agency and choice. There mm -hmm. still is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In and how we're relating to it and what we do and what we bring to it. And, you know, if we take a body of well that's a whole other subject i was going to say if we take our body full of tension you know to something right in some ways you could say the the tense and sore muscles what they are is a representation of the past yes 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 a representation of the past yeah, yeah. so you know so it is it's really about being happy finding within oneself within one's nervous system within one's body very small choice points but they can make a huge difference you know yeah. to our experience even if the things that we don't want to do maybe it's yeah even if okay. the things we don't want to do can be done in a different way that at least is less painful and preferably can be even pleasurable and this is a great reframe to constraints understanding that even people incarcerated take agency and 
can do something with their lives. And such is the story of, of Moshe Feldenkrais himself. He had a very bad knee injury. They they wanted to chop off his, his leg and he said no. And that was like a key moment for this judoka physicist of the Sorbonne that was also working uh, as part of the the defense systems of, I think, Britain in, during the world wars as a Jewish that had to, to run away. And he made out of those terrible, terrible, really terrible circumstances and constraints, something wonderful that transformed his life for the better and and provide the world with amazing tools to to take ownership, to be self-referential, and finally to to fully embark in this endless and wondrous journey that is to know thyself. Mm. So would you share with us a little movement experience to sure, sure. essential pleasure? Um so I was thinking that, you know, one of the things that were taught in many cultures is that we should have a tight core. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is like, and yet we take that advice without questioning it. Right. Yeah. Well, like who, how, who said this and is it true? Right. So I thought we could do something with the core because we know from lots of studies that if you have muscles that are contracting all of the time, they actually are weaker because they don't get to rest so they can fire well again. And um, and we also know that when we tighten our abdomen, um, that's something that usually like precedes a certain act, you know, but if we were to tighten it all the time, we can create a lot of anxiety in our nervous system very easily. Um, so I thought we would play around with that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Sounds okay. great. Yeah. So um, if you're just sitting, you would feel your contact with the seat below you. Yeah. And then you could just take a moment to follow the air coming in and out of your nostrils and just noticing the sensation of that air coming in and out. And it's a different temperature perhaps coming in than going out. And then you would just notice what else, where else you feel that sensation of that air, maybe in the back of your throat, maybe in your neck, perhaps in your chest. Maybe you feel it in your belly or your abdomen, maybe not, or your sides or your ribs. You just, you don't have to make anything happen. Whatever's happening is perfectly fine. You're breathing, you're alive, but you just notice what's moving. And then you could put a hand if you wanted on your belly, if you need more information, but you just notice if the area below your navel moves at all as you breathe. Maybe, maybe not. And you just put your hand there and just see. For some people it does, some it does not. 
and it doesn't matter either way. And you could also, if you wanted, you could put a hand on your chest to see if there's any movement there. And then a few times, I want you to just take a inhalation through your nose and then let it out through your mouth. In through your nose and out through the mouth. And the next time as you inhale through the nose, you can go ahead and draw your lower abdomen in as you inhale through the nose. So you would pull your belly in as you inhale and let it go out through your mouth. And as you do that a few times, notice what happens to your chest if you pull the belly in. Okay, and just rest. Notice your contact with the seat below you and notice your mind, your mood, the rhythm of your breath. And now, just while resting there, go ahead and draw and your lower belly in and tighten it and just go on breathing, just however you're breathing, whatever you're doing normally, with your belly drawn in, just an amount that's comfortable for you, but it's tighter than it might have been a moment ago. Just notice the effect that has on your neck and your jaw on your throat, your chest, and if it changes your mood in any noticeable way or your sort of your energy in any way, maybe, maybe not, and then let it go. And when you let it go, see what happens if your breath changes, if you take a sigh, if something happens. Yeah. And a few times as you inhale, just let your belly get a little bit fuller, rounder, purposely try to breathe into your belly so it gets a little bit bigger. And then just let the air come out, however it comes out. But you could keep taking the air in through your nose and out your mouth. And then just rest. And notice your energy and your contact with the chair and just how you're feeling. Yeah. So the breath is like one of these very interesting ways that we can take something that's unconscious and make it conscious very quickly. It's a very quick way to change what's happening in the brain and the nervous system. And so you could, you know, if I was going to teach that for a while, we would just keep playing with different things with the breath, with the chest. But as animals, if we were, you know, either trying to freeze, we would tighten up. Yeah. If we were like trying to not be noticed, we would tighten our belly, right? Which is an anxious state. 
Um, we also might pull our belly in right before we pounce and we roar. Yeah. Before we have to do something big and strong. Um, so there can be this sort of increase in the energy in the sympathetic nervous system, right? Just by drawing the belly in and increasing the breathing in the chest. And when we let the belly soften and release, um, we usually find this kind of quieting in the nervous system um, or what people would call grounding or something like that. Um, so it's a very simple little way that we can play around. Um, and there are some very quick reversals, you know, that take 60 seconds, three minutes, you know, that you can do depending. I use them different ways. Sometimes I need more energy and I'll purposely do a certain kind of thing with my abdomen and breath. And sometimes I need to take it down, you know, um, but they're very quick responses, you know, in the nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. I could feel it immediately, like the shift in the, in the brain chemistry and it makes all of the sense in the world to, to restore the natural tone of the abdomen for the task at hand being it plain contemplation like you you don't need to be to be hard bracing for impact if you're swinging yourself in the hammock unless you see that you're gonna fall from the hammock <laughs> but otherwise, otherwise you're just triggering your nervous system to be ready for for a demanding action that needs core strength and protection to to your digestive organs otherwise like it was very clear to me and i'm sure for the centralists here watching listening us it was also very clear to feel like the uh, deep relief of letting all hang out and noticing the difference the immediate difference in the tone of the neck, the shoulders, and the screeching of the teeth. And this is like a practical application of what we have been talking about that you said, that this is about the process and taking agency and being self-referential in the way that, am I tightening the abdomen, the abdomen because I want to? or because I've, I'm expected to, even though no one is watching me. Right, or, or also, oh wow, my abdomen is contracted. I'm holding my breath. Am I anxious about something right now? You know, it also it wow. has that too. We can go, wow, I'm doing that. There must, is, is there a reason? And sometimes there's a reason long before we're conscious. You know, so yeah. we can look at that. Is it habit? Is there a reason that I'm not conscious of? Or like you said, and that's where all that choice comes in. That's where all that agency comes in to be self-referential. Yeah. Yeah. Looking in and asking questions because the, the body never lies. Like our own physiology like was here in, in a systemic way way before our brain so it's very nice too and like also very calming like <laughs> i don't need to be like super extra small smart or more intelligent or more skilled like 
I'm already alive and doing great things. And when I turn inwards to this sensitivity, I can discover that I am more, not only more efficient, but that I am having a, a good time, that I, I can delight in the yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, ha you know, it's so interesting that we learn not to give that to ourselves because children don't deny themselves that, right? It's only once we're socialized. It's only once we're socialized. And we can re-socialize ourselves, you know. And the other amazing thing is the more of us doing it, the more we give permission to do it yes. yeah and we build those cultures with each other as we do it you know very yeah. much so. yeah I, i'll go back to the the house thing you know when my first son was born i was lucky that there was a group of women in the neighborhood who also had kids at the same time and we would get together once a week with all and put all the babies on the floor and you know hang out and um and I remember once saying something about like, oh, excuse the mess or something. And one of them saying like, okay, like we're, we're just not going to say that anymore. Like, can we all make an agreement? None of us are going to say that to each other, right? About our homes, about whatever, for example. And that seems so small, right? But it's big, you know, it's big. And it's just like the belly, like softening your belly, you know, um, you you know you see somebody do that and not only so my friends you know we were giving each other verbal permission but there's a lot of amazing information now about how our brains synchronize through our heartbeat and through um uh smell actually is a big piece of how the brains find synchronicity but um you know, when you're around someone who is in that state, just like I saw it in my friend who inspired me to go study Feldenkrais, it, that's not something magical that I've, it, it, it is a, I could sense in her presence. And we now have lots of great brain studies that explain why we know these things, you know, <laughs> with people. Yeah. So it's, it really does start to build a different culture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then we feel supported because we're social. We want to be in it with other people. We don't we don't want to be outliers all the time. Absolutely. You know. We yes. just but it's it's a, a different life socializing and being in an as community when we are self-referenced. Because then it's truly us who is coming forth and sharing and being present instead of complying with your idea of their idea because you you never truly know it's just the projection. And and when you are running in this in this like somatical embodied truth, then the interchange is is sincere, meaningful, creative, like like these these mothers that brought their babies in, in your community. It yeah. came as something natural and it's it's beautiful. 
that we get to have this understanding beyond the discursive mind simply by how we are locating ourselves in in the relational space if we are like going outside of ourselves to to please or to to be accepted or to be validated when we are in contrast to being like self-referenced self-connected sensitive right and it's like it's i feel like it's when we become real adults yes yes maturity <laughs> Because we're we're really taking responsibility for ourselves, right? Like a hundred percent saying, okay, well, I'm responsible. And I think when we're with people doing that, we also experience relief because someone's not asking us to do something that like really isn't ours to do, you know? So it's, it really is. It's an amazing feeling when we can do that with each other. It's really an incredible thing. Yeah. 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 It is. Yeah. yeah. I feel it now talking to you, you know, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> so nice. We are in this lovely resonance with, with the people listening to us as well. Somehow, some way there is the disconnection that happens in an yeah. authentic and embodied way that sustain the, the joy, the pleasure of, of being here present in this moment and sharing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Astra. This, wow. this great experience yeah. with you. So tell us, how can we learn more about what you're doing? Um, you can go to my website and I have my TED Talk on there as well as how to get in touch with me. Um, I send out, you know, uh, information. I write a blog and share workshops and I teach workshops online. So you can reach me at um, astra, A-S-T-R-A-C-O-Y-L-E.com, astracoil.com. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So much fun. So nice to meet you and be with you. Thank you and essentialist so go to astracoil.com and learn more about her doings in feldenkrais and culture movement and all things good also if you haven't already go grab the guide to awaken sensuality is free at www.centraldepoder.com and catch you next time until then Remember to take the time to sense your fire so you can share the flaming.